0: Wow. Okay, well, well, we'll get that again. Thank you. I'll head back to California. All right, here we go. My name is Peter. I'm a recovered alcoholic. We love you, Peter. Lots and lots and lots. <coughs> Do the authorities know about this guy right here? <coughs> Is that a cape you're wearing? originally from New York. Uh, we don't walk around with capes. Bad things happen. <clears throat> Keep coming back. <clears throat> All right. Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, grateful to this committee for this kind invitation to me to be here with you and share uh, my experience strength, and hope on what it was like, what happened, what it's like now living in the sunlight of the spirit, what it's like to be experientially a recovered alcoholic. And uh, thank my dear friend Tony. Uh, met him in uh, Detroit, I believe, about two years ago it was freezing out. So I'm in Indianapolis, it was colder, and we got the frozen tundra out there tonight. So next time I see Tony, I'm running <laughs> away from him. Um, Loving God separated me from alcohol on June 23rd, 1988. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I say recovered because I am. And anything less than that would be falsely humble. I'm not looking to be recovering anything any longer. I was recovering for a few years in our sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, being a recovering alcoholic is bondage and pain and uh, attached to a thinking mind operating on that level of consciousness. But something happens within the 12-step work And when we repeat the 12 steps over and over and over again, and we get to a place called the world of the spirit, sunlight of the spirit, we operate on a different level of consciousness, no longer attached to a thinking mind, no longer attached to the alcoholic mind, no longer attached to alcoholism or addiction. And when that thing happens, we get our spiritual wings and off we go. And we get to experience consciousness without doubt. We get to experience seeing the world through God's eyes, hearing with God's ears and speaking with God's words. It's an awakening of the spirit, which is the goal of the 12 steps, which is the goal of our sacred fellowship, to get right with a God of our understanding. And the way you guys shout what you shout, I hope one day you shout just as loud God from the rooftops and not ever apologize for God in any AA campgrounds that you go to, because that is the solution to what we suffer from. And I'm very grateful to be able to talk to you about that as spirit moves me experientially, what, what it's like living in the sunlight of the Spirit. Uh, my current life, man, consists of prayer meditation three times a day. That's where the Spirit has moved me. When I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not a God lover. A lot of us get here, you know, we got 20 days, and, like, we love the Lord, and we love AA, and I was not like that. I hated God, and I didn't want any part of Alcoholics Anonymous. This was just the last place that would take me. I had been through seven treatment centers and got into AA by being way of homeless. And how I got into my seventh and last treatment center is a whole prayer thing and a whole God story. But I got here and I wasn't too sure about you guys. I saw lots of people smiling, having fun in little groups around the coffee pot. And I said, This is not for me, but it's the only place that would take me. And so off I went. And when they talked about God, I got skept- skeptical, I got doubtful, I got critical. But I kept putting days together and months together, and I could not deny the power of God in our sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you haven't found out AA is sacred, I hope you stick around long enough to find out the sacredness of our glorious fellowship and treat it as sacred. Because what happens in these rooms is that we get reborn and resurrected. God could have gave this message to some of the greatest minds of our time. He could have gave this uh, uh, message to some of the medical community, religious community. He could have gave it to many, many people, and yet he dropped it in another alcoholic's lap because we know each other. I've never met any of you guys other than Tony, yet we know each other. And I get to travel around the globe doing this, and I walk into AA, and I know them, and they know me. God gave this message to another alcoholic to pass on, and my job is to carry the torch as our founding members put it together and never water it down or gobble it. It's not a popularity contest. It's about saving lives in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope to never lose the sense of urgency and treat this with the desperation of a drowning man in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an honor for me to be a member of this fellowship. It's an honor for me to get to a podium and share my experience and then hope and then get invited to somewhere else to go do this. It's an honor for me to sit with another drunk at my kitchen table and let's get busy. And I will never tell a drunk make 90 meetings in 90 days because I'm not in the business of killing anybody. <laughs> So my life is, you know, prayer and meditation three times a day. I have a sponsor, Mickey M. from Colorado. My, my lineage, my sponsor is Mark H., and uh, my lineage goes back to uh, Dr. Bob. And I don't say that for any other reason, that I have a responsibility to carry that message as God has put me here tonight with you. I sponsor a whole bunch of men. I have a home group in in, uh, Deerfield Beach, Florida. I moved to Boca a couple of years ago uh, in South Florida. I'm originally from New York and moved to Jersey and uh, down in Florida working in the treatment center industry. and, And life was great. I'm a published author today and with another book on its way. And how these things happen is beyond me. But it is not beyond God. Because the road is already paved for every one of us. The road has been paved by a loving God, and all I need to do, all we need to do is be awake enough and clear enough to see the road in front of us and walk it without harm. But we walk with God, one with God, not separated from this power. Sometimes we point to the heavens, and that's great, but we need to know that the great reality is deep down within, and God is saying go left, and God is saying go right, because the road's already been paved. And for someone like me who was clueless when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, what a great thing to find out that a loving God has paid a road for me and all I have to do is get out of the way. And the way, best way to get out of the way is by going through the 12 steps. So, on most days, I've gotten very present and mindful to where I am. No longer attached to the thinking that goes on. No longer attached to all the drama that goes on in my head. But very present and very mindful with you right now. Because if I was supposed to be somewhere else, God would have me somewhere else. I'm here and that's where God wants me. And that's all I need to focus on. And be an empty vessel for God to carry his words through me. So most days I'm very present and mindful to where I am, unattached, detached from a thinking mind and all the voices that it talks to us with. For example, if you think about anyone drove over here in their car alone tonight, right, just a show of hands, how many folks drove in their car alone tonight, right, alone? If you think about it, you weren't alone because while you were in the car, you probably had about 45 other people talking to you at the same time, (laughs) right? And they're waiting in the car when you leave here. They're sitting in the car saying, hey, you're late. What's this all about? You know, let's get <laughs> going. we got things to do. And we wake up in the morning and say, look at you. You're still married to that. I can't believe it. You need a better job. You need more money. You're too thin. You're too fat. You're too tall. You're too short. It goes on and on and on. And it's obsessive and compulsive. And what we do is pay attention to all of it. And we get a sense of self from our defects and from our drama. And what the work does is allow us to cut loose of all of that. And at the beginning, we stand raw. We stay naked to the world for the first time. But it's a necessary ingredient so we can get well. The process of recovery, guys, is never addition but removal. And it's not a linear thing but a transformational movement that we get to experience. We don't need anything. Everything we needed to walk this life, God gave us at birth. And what I did, what we do, is we accumulate things. We accumulate belief systems. I accumulate resentments. I accumulate fears. And I land in Alcoholics Anonymous because the only way I can deal with any of that is give me a double and I can breathe. I don't, we don't do life well. We don't. I will never tell a drunk, live life on life's terms. For me to live life on life's terms, I need a drink. But Big Book tells me, Chapter 2, Agnostic, live life on God's terms. It's simple and easy and open to all. We don't need uh, a special pass to get into the place. Not with God. So I live life on God's terms because I don't do life well. I can't stand in the middle of life when it comes at me, whether it's joys or sorrows. I just don't do it well. I got the wrong software in me, and it's by accumulating stuff. And what AA allows me to do is remove all of it, and I stand back to what God created at the beginning. Every one of you, including me, has done certain things on the path to destruction. We have become certain things, but it's never who we be. Who we be at the core is pure, honest, unselfish, and loving. It's the God, It's the DNA of God. Every one of us sits here tonight in God. The one who's breathing through us is God. The one who makes the heart beat is God. There's no separateness. We become ugly. We become uh, uh, drunks. We do ugly things. It's never who we be. And what the 12 steps do is allow us to go home and experience the abundance of God. And then we walk free. That's what that young lady with one day, wherever she is, should be hearing in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Free from bondage, freedom, recovered in the sunlight of the spirit. And that's what we should be shouting from the rooftops. My first drink came when I was 14 years old. I I grew up in a place called Brooklyn, New York. Like, you don't know by the way I speak, right? Uh, We change how it works into uh, how you doing. (laughs) My first home group, they told me the only requirement for membership was a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry. You'd fit right in. Without the cake, though. It was a Saturday night, and uh, I was hanging out on a corner. When I was growing up back in the day uh, in Brooklyn, there was everyone had to hang out on a corner. It, it was like almost a religion. You hung out in a schoolyard, you hung out on a corner with the group or what we call the crew, and everyone belonged to something. In fact, if you were going off to, like, Harvard University this fall, we feel really bad that you're going to miss all this mess while you went away and not hang out and get drunk and be stupid on the corner. What a poor guy. He's going off to an Ivy League school. What a shame. He's not going to hang out with us. And that's how we respected our corner. And I hung out with all the guys. They were, like, 16 and 17 because I was all but 14. And this one Saturday night, my friends were drinking uh, Colt Col 45 beer. Yeah. And uh, my kind of crowd. and I was driven by a hundred forms of fear I was fear-based and insecure like most of us no matter where I went I couldn't fit in I was a good athlete not good enough I wasn't good looking enough I wasn't tall enough I wasn't tough enough I could never talk to the girls and I was restless little and discontented the chatter of a thousand voices in my head all the time between ages roughly around eight or ten there was a I'll call him a distant relative in in my family, my extended family. And uh, from time to time, he would babysit for me and my two younger brothers. And he was extremely inappropriate with me. And I walked away from those moments feeling completely dirty and violated by it. But I couldn't tell anyone. And so I show up to the corner at 14 and my friends are drinking. And there was even a time I questioned my manhood. If I was a real boy, real man at 8 and 10, I would never let anyone do this to me. I didn't know I was a victim of circumstances. No one explained that to me. I had a a woman at home. I called her mom who was alcoholic, but we didn't know it. Because like most families, alcoholism doesn't exist. There's no such thing in our family. We're a good, upstanding family. But mom, they would take her from uh, uh, sanitarium to sanitarium to sanitarium, and they would prescribe Valium back in the day for her. And like us, we'd eat the Valium and drink the booze anyway. And after several attempts of at trying to take her own life, because she experienced what we do, the incomprehensible demoralization of alcoholism brings us to She finally succeeded in taking her life on January 23rd of 1973, and I woke up to absolute terror that morning. I remember being frozen with fear in my lower bunk. I couldn't move. It was the first time I ever heard my dad cry on the phone to the 911 call, screaming to the police office, I think my wife is dead, come over. My life changed forever. My design for living, if you will, was taken out of my lap. And I was the kid who walked around the neighborhood and people would talk under the breath. That's the kid whose mom killed herself. And you know how we are when we're 14 and 15. We're not real sensitive to each other. And I was the tag kid on the neighborhood, and it became extremely difficult for me. And my story's not worse than yours, but we all have our own. And this one Saturday night when my friends were drinking beer, uh, I decided to put my hand in there and take a few pops off that court, and I did. I got many stern warnings from my dad, who's cunning, baffling, and powerful. My dad's a man's man, street guy, makes Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell, tough man. And he warned me many times he didn't want me drinking. But this one Saturday night, I put my hand in there, and I took a few pops off the court. And I thought that I was going to get caught as soon as I drank beer. I just knew the odds were stacked against me. I was the type of kid everyone in this room can steal. And I put my hand in there, and the FBI would be waiting for me. (laughs) Nothing happened. So I drank some more and I drank some more and I drank some more. And somewhere in doing that quart of beer, something indescribably wonderful happened to me. I got to a place out there. I captured that elusive feeling. I was okay. Bill says in his story, I had arrived. And I didn't know Bill's story back then, but I remember feeling like I've arrived. This is okay. I can breathe. Because I don't do life well. It was the first time in my life I had a sense of ease and comfort that came from taking a few pops off a quart of uh, cold 45 beer. Never experienced that. As I continued to drink, my shoulders dropped. The air went back in my lungs. I got taller. I got better looking. The girls got prettier. I got to be a tough guy. By the end of the night, I was like Al Pacino. By the end of the night, it was a great thing. I can tell I'm in a young crowd. They don't know who Al Pacino is. <laughs> I, you know who I mean. Okay. Alcohol was doing it for me what I couldn't do it for myself. Alcohol was not a problem; It was a panacea for my ills. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. That's why I returned to it. It wasn't a problem. I didn't get in trouble. I didn't know anything about the phenomenon called craving. As an alkie, when I drink, the cravings intensified, not satisfied. I didn't know about the obsession. I just knew I kept thinking about drinking all the time. And who knew about anything called the spiritual malady? These were foreign terms to me. All I knew was I drank. I liked the effect produced by alcohol. I'll take more. More was my drink. More is all about drink. There's no choice involved here. Just IV me, Jack Daniels. And when I pass out and come to, hit me again. Isn't it interesting in some of our contemporary AA meetings where we come in here, more is all the time. Just give me more, just give me more, just give me more. And we come into AA and we put a lid on how much God we're going to talk about. Not too much God. I'm driving tonight, you know. (laughs) But I love the effect produced by alcohol. And when I got up the next morning, there were no hangovers. I wasn't handcuffed to a jail cell. No one was looking for me. remembered everything. There were no blackouts. And I remember thinking, I love the effect by alcohol that was produced in me last night. The next morning, I remember going down to the park to play ball with the older guys. I was a good little athlete. And they used to play Sunday morning basketball. And I walk in, and they get me involved right away. And uh, but when I walked into the park that morning, I remember there was something different about my deportment. There was something indescribably wonderful going on within me. I found a solution, and I can deal with the rest of the week. That is something radically wrong with a 14-year-old kid saying, "I need something to deal with the rest of the week." At 14, we should have the world in the palm of our hands with no problems, no concerns, no cares, no worries. But for most of us, it's not like that because we don't do life well. Huh? Why do we tell drunks live life on life's terms that we need a drink to even attempt to do that? And at 14, I couldn't do it. But I just knew when I walked into the park, I had a panacea. I can't wait till the following Saturday to roll around so I can get out there and be great again. I can capture that feeling. My shoulders were about that wide when I walked in it was a great thing who know who knew about unmanageability my life was to become unmanageable blind man could have seen that being homeless and panhandling doing all the things i did for the price of a drink not until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't even learn this in treatment. Not until I came into AA did I find out that the essence of unmanageability in Step One is having no power, choice, or control in the mind before we even drink. Not a cloud on the horizon; everything could look great. My mind says, "Go drink," and I go drink, and I can't stop it. Can't even think to drink through or play the tape to the end because alcohol is my master. It. Owns me, and if I think, as an alcoholic, a real alcoholic, the one on page twenty-one, that I can outrun my own shadow by outthinking my own thinking, I'm in serious trouble. That's why I will never tell a drink re- drunk remember where you come from. Who's remembering where we come from? The same mind that wants me drunk. It's not going to let me remember where I come from. It's going to say she was pretty nice and the liquor was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> So I went about my business that week and the following Friday rolled around, Saturday rolled around, I got drunk and the following Saturday rolled around, I got drunk and I had this great idea, why wait till Saturday when I can get this going on Friday? And I did. And then it became Thursday and Wednesday. Now I was drinking. Bill Wilson says in his story, there were many unhappy scenes in his sumptuous apartment. There became many unhappy scenes in my home. I had a dad at home and two younger brothers. Now my younger brothers idolized me. They did the same sports I did. They listened to the same music I did. Nothing like you guys were listening tonight. I still don't know what that was. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just one Rolling Stones tune would have made me very happy. <laughs> now, for you younger guys, the Rolling Stones was a great band that came around a long time ago. I've never felt so old in my life till I showed up here Friday. <clears throat> I was getting drunk somewhere. Where was I? Um, my brothers, thank you. Senility goes with my age, by the way, so we forget right in the middle. Um, so I had two younger brothers, and uh, they did everything I did. And as an older brother, I protected them. As I was supposed to. that's how I was taught. But as alcoholism starts to do what alcoholism does in the form of progression, my younger brothers start to become afraid of me. And my dad would wonder what he was doing wrong with me. My grandparents start to wonder what's wrong with Peter. At the beginning, uh, I was a nasty drunk. A lot of venom would come at me. I would, you know, curse my life. I was fed up with my life already. I hated this power call God because mom would take me to church and she taught me how to pray. As if God was so loving, why she gone? And why am I stuck with this guy called dad that I'm just so afraid of? I just marched to a different beat. I liked music and art. My dad didn't even know what baseball and art and music was. He had a different rhythm to life. And I was stuck. And I didn't know what to do, and I felt inadequate and insecure, so to heck with God. I would dump a lot of this ugly language on my younger brothers, and they would tell my dad, and the next day my dad would corner me. My dad's the type of guy, a corner of a room, a street corner, behind a building, an alleyway, his bedroom, the living room, he didn't care, but he looked at you, and if you blinked, you were lying. He looked you right in the eye, and if you blinked, you were lying. I was blinking all the time. I was deadly afraid of this guy, and he would tell me about what I was going to become, that I was going to become, I'll never forget these words, a product of my environment. And not like any alcoholic, I just waited for him to have his peace, and out the door I went, and I would go drinking with my friends. And things started this decline, eventually a moral decline, but a decline nonetheless. Life was kind of spinning out of control. Everyone saw it except me. My deal was just leave me alone. I played the mom card for a long time. Well, mom committed suicide. You don't know what it's like. I'm the oldest of three. And it went on and on and on. Lots of drama, lots of emotional blackmail, lots of manipulation. But at the end of the day, I had a drink in me. And once I drink, I can't stop. When I'm not drinking, I can't even stop it from coming on. Like a good alcoholic, I start to steal from people who adored and trusted me, and my family, because that's what we do. And my dad would leave lots of cash and jewelry around. My brothers had little jobs, and they'd leave their money around. And you would figure your money and personal belongings are safe in your home, but not with an alcoholic in. Guys, by the time God separated me from alcohol on June 23rd, 1988, my family was suffering from full-blown alcoholism, and none of them are alcoholic. I thank the Sacred Fellowship of Al-Anon for giving me a family back and putting them back together. So any Al-Anons, I commend you and thank you for what you do in your fellowship. I can never tell a drunk, just don't drink and go to meetings. Or don't drink and I'm a winner because what about the leveling we did on the way in here? Those folks were involved in a drive-by shooting and expect, you know, we expect them to clean up the mess. That's not how God works. That's not how AA works. I go back and fix it. And my family was involved in a drive-by, by me. And so one morning I woke up and I needed some money and I couldn't find any. And I discovered my dad's checkbook in one of these China closet drawers, one of these big pieces of furniture. And I took the check out and I forged his name on it, I think anything about it, and went down to the local store. They all knew my dad. There's anything for your pop. Tell him we said hello. And they gave me 20 bucks off the check. I thought I hit Powerball with this. This was great. And I did it a few times. Anytime I need money, I'd sneak in, take a check, sign his name, boom, go and get 20, 40. I upped it to $60 one time. Now, back then, that was a lot of money to steal from your parents. I knew nothing about checking statements. All that stuff came back. And back then, they would send a whole check with a big rubber stamp on it. back. My dad discovered all these checks, and then he came looking for me. This is not the type of guy you are looking for you, (laughs) even though you're a son. I mean, my family had... I'm the first born in an Italian-American family. The expectations were simple. Pope or president. There was no in-between. And I get caught stealing. This was not a good day. And my dad... He caught me uh, uh, by the Brooklyn Bridge in downtown Manhattan. And I remember um, I had just gotten a driver's license. I was sitting in his car with this young lady. Uh, I think I was in love. We got drunk the night before, so you know how that goes. And she was sitting in the car. Uh, well, you know how it is when you're drinking. And, and the drunker you get, the better looking she gets. And you think you're, you're drinking like with Bo Derek. Right? You come to next to Bo Diddley the next morning. And you want to get to that chat? But... Uh, my dad drove up and jumped out of the car. He threw down a cigarette. His eyebrow goes up, and I'm in serious trouble, and he walked across the street. And I tried to take off, and I ran away. I told him, listen, honey, you talk to him. I'm leaving, and off I went, and, uh, and he caught me, and I went to my first treatment center. Now, as a young kid, I didn't concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. I didn't believe I had alcoholism. I got caught. And I did 28 days in treatment, and at the time, you know, uh, insurance companies would give you the 28-day cure, and you learn about your inner child, your dysfunctional family, your triggers, your issues, and a lot of stuff. How brain is meta- how alcohol is metabolized in the brain, and how it breaks down in the body. And it was charts and graphs and all this other stuff. And by the time I left treatment, I needed a double, as I'm really sick. I need to drink to deal with this. I hated my family more on the way out of treatment than on the way in. They didn't talk to me about a solution, and even if they did, I wasn't buying it. I went to treatment, my first few treatment centers, just to get the heat off my back. I got caught. The streets were getting ugly. I'll go to treatment. I mean, they would take us for art therapy and dance therapy, and they took us for physical therapy. You should have seen this one. We had crackheads and winos and pillheads and potheads and junkies, all the detoxing, and they took us into a big gymnasium for physical fitness. (laughs) And there was one basketball hoop on one side, another basketball hoop on the other side, and one basketball. And the ball rolled from one end of the gym to the other, and it sounded, physical therapy sounded like this I'm not getting it, you get it. The crackheads were going, I'll get it, don't worry about it, I'll get it. The potheads were going, wow. So it didn't work. So we went outside and had a cigarette and went back to group. And uh, 28 days later, I had a girl meet me at the door. I said, honey, I'm coming home. And I treated her like I did like a bit new, in, in some state pen. And she brought a jug up. I inquired about AA, and I was right back to the same vicious cycle again. I had not conceded. I didn't uh, knew, know nothing about the phenomenal craving and mental obsession or the spiritual malady. So how could I get help, even if it was offered? I was so not into getting well. Back in the day, there was a show called Miami Vice. Don Johnson was my higher power. And the H&I folks would come in on Friday nights at 8 o'clock. Miami Vice went on at 9. And I used to write on the chalkboard in the treatment center, Miami Vice, 9 p.m., speakers, please leave promptly. Because I wanted no part of recovery. I wanted to go drink. And I got out after 28 days and got drunk and went right back to the same vicious cycle and got into my second treatment center, got into my third treatment center, got into my fourth treatment center, and somewhere near I got a job as a dock worker, a a, a longshoreman is what they call it in South Brooklyn. This is a rough environment, not the training ground for spiritual growth. There's some rough characters involved here. It was outdoors, it was cold in the winter, hot in the summer, and everyone drank. And there were some rough characters associated around that industry. And I quickly found out that I can borrow some money from them if I drop some names. And I would borrow money from these these characters. And they wanted a little bit back each week until I can pay the whole thing off. And if you didn't do that, they came looking for you, and they weren't bringing Starbucks. I was in trouble. And over and over and over again, my dad would bail me out of these jams. And I, my dad started to experience... The incomprehensible demoralization. You start to experience terror, frustration, bewilderment, and despair. He's not alcoholic. He was wondering what's going on with his son. And what owned me, alcoholism, owned him. And from walking with his head up and shoulders squared, he was walking down looking at the floor all the time because I was in another problem. I wasn't showing up for work. This was a job that was impossible to get fired from. We were one of the most powerful unions at the time, and I got fired from that job by my dad. He said, do not come back here anymore. Now what do I do? And I bounced from job to job, and my dad says, well, maybe if you straighten out, we'll get your job back. And I got into my fifth treatment center, and the promise was if I was to stay sober and go to those AA meetings, he might get my job back. And what my dad did for me with all the mistakes that he made with me growing up, he was like the cavalry always showing up because God works through people. My dad decided to get me this little apartment in Brooklyn, New York, a little studio apartment. And what he did was he furnished this little studio for me. He bought me a bed, TV, clothes, shoes, all the things I would need to kind of get going. Paid my first month, last month's security, all of it. And if I was to walk this walk, perhaps he would get my job back. And what I did about 10 minutes after he drove away was took the brand new color TV out on my back and I sold it. And I sold the clock right and the brand new shoes and boxes and the clothes and garment bags. And I wasn't paying rent. And after a short time, I had the Bowery basically living in this little studio. Upstairs was a landlord. Him and his wife owned the house. She was pregnant. They had a little daughter. He was working and going to school. And they were trying to make a life for themselves. And I despised everything they represented. On Sunday mornings, if I was home, if I was coming to, and I had a little barbecue in the backyard, I would hear the laughter and hear all the family together, and I would spit. At my window, because I despise what they were, only because I wanted to be like that. I knew it was done, that I couldn't do that. I'm not going to see 30 years old, and I hate everything. I despise anyone who looked joyous, happy, and free, alcoholic or not. Why would I walk into a meeting of and AANC, 1,000 or 500 or 100 smiling faces? I'm not going there. I knew in my, in my heart of hearts that I was a mistake. I couldn't do this thing called life. And the quicker I'm out, the better. I got thrown out of this little studio apartment, and I was homeless. I would bounce around from place to place. And before I, I got into my fifth treatment center, I remember uh, there was a young lady. Until this day, I don't know why she would date me. But I was uh, hanging out in Staten Island, New York, and there was a, a nightclub and a, a motel up above it, real swanky joint. And um, uh, I was renting a room. Well, she was renting a room, and I would just lay in bed all day. Till this day, it has to be a god deal why she was with me. I don't know, just to keep me alive long enough until I got to you guys. But she would date me, and she was tending bar. And she would come up from her shift about 3 or 4 a.m., whatever it was, and drop a purse on the floor. And one one early morning, I remember laying in bed, and I got up to go into a purse when she fell asleep, and I was going to steal money from her. And what I found in her purse was a bunch of pills, Valium. And I says, there is a God after all. Because as Bill says in this story, the courage to do battle was not there. I was done with this deal called life. Life is not fun. Life is nothing but terror. Life is nothing but pain and suffering. And I can't do it. I'm not supposed to be here. So I ate what was left of those pills in the bottle. And I washed them down what was left of the alcohol. And I remember this clearly as it happened a day ago. I got back into bed. Now, mind you, I was very depressed. I mean, I was completely disconnected from life. But there was somewhat of an excitement, a quiet excitement within me that it's over. I'm going to go to sleep and not wake up. It's over. I'm done. How great is this? I'm in my 20s. And again, something radically wrong with the 20-year-old looking to cut out. But that's where alcoholism brings people like us. When my mom committed suicide, the belief system of the day that it was, you know, women are weak and men are strong. The Marinelli men would never do this. We need to protect our women. Mom was sick. She was a woman. She's weak. Men never commit suicide. And there I was in this fleabag motel, looking to die, wishing to die, praying to die, and God interrupted my death. But as I got back into bed, it was made abundantly clear to me that suicide has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with being alcoholic, because that's where it takes us to, to the point where I can't do this anymore. I've got to get out. And some of us who are addicted to some other substances may push it one day. We think we really want to get high. What we really want to do is just cut it out altogether and not wake up. That's what alcoholism does. So we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And there should be a sense of urgency, not so much only by you but by those the elder statesmen in aA who understand what we you are up against, and never offer you hang in there and make ninety meetings in ninety days because you may die on the second day. You may get drunk on the first day that young lady who 's got one day, somebody should sponsor and start the big book tonight with her because we don 't know if she 's coming back. We have a responsibility once we get on this side of the fence, and that's not to hang around, but to look for drunks, because God gave us spiritual wings. One of the things we're supposed to be doing, and allow me to get on the soapbox, is this. Bring God's children back to God, whether they're 15, 20, or 50 in the rooms for one day or 10 years. Bring God's children back to God so he can fix us. He can make us right. And the only way we can do that, people like us, is we land in AA because it's the last house on the block. I should never offer a drunk, make 90 meetings in 90 days, don't drink and go to meetings, hang in there, play the tape to the end. Are you telling me our entire legacy has left us with don't drink and go to meetings? That's all we got to offer, or should we be saying to that young lady, I'll sponsor you tonight, by tomorrow you'll be on step four. We'll work right through tonight. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm running through the streets, and um, uh, I land in my fifth treatment center, and I was in treatment for nine weeks. I was, how I got into these treatment centers after I got fired is really a God deal. It's a whole other meeting. But I landed in this fifth treatment center, the same place again. And I go up there for nine weeks. And I was physically separated from alcohol. I even looked better. I was eating. The food wasn't running through me. I was catching some catnaps. I was participating in groups. I was even able to shoot some baskets in physical therapy. I was kind of getting on my feet physically, the big trickster. Because the ego loves that. The ego says, look at you. You look great. You don't need to go to some of the many, any lens that the rest of the folks are going through. I bought it. Because that's what alcoholism does. It tricks me. It pretties up you know, It gets me drunk. Wants me dead. Wants me drunk. It'll get me there. After nine weeks of being discharged. I, after nine weeks, I get discharged. Two days later, I'm drunk again. And I drank as if I never went to treatment. And the thing I learned firsthand was that being physically separated from alcohol has little to do with becoming recovered. It's just one piece. The same way meetings don't treat alcoholism. Meetings do not treat alcoholism. and we come to get what we say to give. And as messengers of God, I'm not here to be served, but to serve. But the fellowship, which is a bandaid on an open wound, there's something behind that. It's two other sides of this triangle. One is recovery through the big book, and one is giving it all the way, in abundance like an aqueduct. God will give me, and out to you, will give me, and out to you. And we live in all three sides. We can't live in one side and expect the benefits of all three, huh? I didn't know that back then. So I get discharged, and a mental obsession takes me right back. Two days later, I'm drunk. I didn't stop thinking about alcohol once. I love to drink. I went through a few years, I will tell you, of doing non-conference-approved dry goods. And the the, the, the (laughs) detox from that was horrific. I was an animal with that stuff. But the detox was just terrific. I was addicted to a lot of other things. And after the fifth treatment center, I never returned to that. But alcohol was my master. I loved to drink. And I wasn't drinking to be social and have a nice pinky ring on and take a young lady out and be some classy guy. I drank alone. I used to love drinking and driving, have a jug and drive, where I don't know. And when I couldn't do that anymore, just put me in the back of some filthy hallway because I was homeless, in some driveway, up on a roof where no one was around because I knew I was going to go down and then come up and in the same clothes without bathing, go hustle on the street, get some money, and keep the drunk going. I got thrown out of my family's house and my grandparents wanted nothing to do with me and alcoholism had another one. The problem with that is it's not only me who dies. I take dad, I take my brothers, I take the grandparents. I'm in a treatment center business. And I tell these guys when they're sitting in my group, you're in treatment with me. Your entire family is in this group too. Your entire family is held hostage, because that's what we do. We take hostages. They're involved in a drive-by, and my job is, once we get this message from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, once we have the spiritual transformation, the revolution, is to go shout it from the rooftops and bring this into our homes, occupations, and affairs. We get to heal people in AA. Now, that'll ruffle some feathers in our contemporary meetings. Tough. I don't care. It's just the way it is. We're doubting the power of God when we say we can't do that. You go into a drunk's house, and you do the 12-step call on him or her. And you walk in, and the family looks like they're suffering from something. The house looks drunk. The house smells alcoholic. The pets don't want anything to do with the alcohol. The house looks sick and suffering. Then you bring that drunk, you bring him or her in here. And we start working with them through the book. And little by slowly, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 6 months, whatever it is, they have the vital spiritual transformation, the life-changing experience where the shift happens in perceptions. The shift happens from within and manifests out there. And you go back into that house. It's a different house. The spouse is lighter. The house looks different. The kids are walking to a different rhythm. The house smells different. Sober. The house is different. The folks have been different. They've been transformed from the inside, whether they go to AA or Al-Anon or therapy, just the power of God is enough to touch the lives of others. We do it right in AA. That young lady would one day could be sponsoring someone in 60 days and we'll sit back and say, how did that happen? How did it happen? It's called God and Alcoholics Anonymous. It happens all the time. Stop doubting, doubting the miracles. The great thing is we start to see miracles, and we're not going, oh, my God, a miracle. We're going, well, that's what God does. Who's next? So I'm running through the streets, and I lost contact with my family. I remember the last time I had seen my grandmother before I got sober, um, I went, uh, it was a Sunday morning, I was out on her like a three-day drunk, and I looked like I was out on a three-day drunk. I was in dirtier and, and worse shape than I had ever been, and I went back to her house in Brooklyn, and uh, I was going in through the back door. And how I was going through the back door, I was trying to kick the door open, I was there to steal. I was there to rob her house, because I figured her and my grandfather would be at services on Sunday morning, like most Sunday mornings. That one particular day, they didn't go to service. They didn't go to church. And my grandmother was startled. I was startled. And she says, what are you doing? And she invited me in like she always would. And she took us. She a look at her oldest grandson. I remember her saying, what's wrong? And I gave her some nonsense. I knew I couldn't steal. And I was now not interested in being. I have to get out of there. And what she did, she made it quicker. She invited me out. She said, I can't have you here like this. And she offered me to call my dad. And I wanted no part of him. And out the door I went. And so she was infected. Again. My family was becoming infected again by the power of alcoholism. The problem with alcoholism, when we're suffering from alcoholism, we can suffer from alcoholism in meeting in AA making meetings. Because alcoholism, guys, goes underground and resurfaces in other areas. Don't drink, go to meetings. I show up to an AA meeting, I look okay. I'm sounding okay, but what's going on within me is being restless and discontented and my alcoholism goes underground and resurfaces in sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and fear sprees and anger sprees and thinking sprees and sprees, all more blockage to me to experience God. Knew nothing about any of that. All I know is when I'm in that place, I have no compassion for anyone else my grandmother is throwing me out because of what I'm doing, and not once did I say, could it be I'm breaking her heart? When my dad threw me out of the house and my brothers were crying, did I say, I'm breaking their heart, maybe I should go get help? I was like cursing them under my breath, you don't know what it's like for me, and I had an attitude about it, and off I went to justify the inappropriate behavior. What's really frightening for an alcoholic, and any real alcoholic knows exactly what I'm talking about, There comes a point in the drinking where we know it's hurting people. There comes a point in the drinking when we know we're dying. And there comes a point in the drinking where we really want to stop. There also comes a point in the drinking where all of that we can't. And civilians say, what's wrong with this person? What does it take? We want to and we can. That's being powerless. Knowing I'm leveling people now. And I still can't stop. I go to treatment. I go to church. I go to priests. I go all these things because I want to stop. And I can't stop what's wrong with me. What I'm missing is the spiritual connection. And what God will do with did with me and will do with all of us, whether we're in MAA sober and bottoming out or when we're out there, God will take us to the very edge. And a different lens for different people. But God will take us to the very edge. And just when we're about to fall off, we will beg for help. It's called the gift of desperation. And God knows exactly how far to push. And while we're sober, God will interrupt our life. He will shut it down. He will remove relationships. He will remove money. Remove all the external conditions to get my attention. You're headed for trouble. I need to stop everything and get your attention. And that's what God will do. He will suspend our life. Just so we go, what's wrong? Something's wrong. I need to do something. That's when He's got our attention. And here comes a drunk because He will send a drunk to him or to her and we will start the transformation once again, and go home. And all the things that I thought were so important, all the external conditions that I thought were so important to me, meant nothing. Living with adversity allows me to see the things I thought were important, weren't important. Living in an alcoholics anonymous, aligned with God, one with God, all the things I dealt was so important, all the drama I paid so much attention to, means nothing. The opinions that people had of me means nothing. I don't care. I care about one thing, worshipping this power called God and giving it to someone who wants. That's why my life is one of service. I don't have a life. That sounds lame. It sounds awful to a newcomer. I don't have a life. Thank the good Lord for that. My life belongs to God. And Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I've been given in return is a life of abundance. I have relationships that are close to me. I have a family that's been back. I get to do this, and I get to show up for fun and for free. I do something for a living that I would do for free. I have abundance because none of it is important. And God says, Okay, here, go here. Okay, now go there. You can't be here, but you need to be there. When we're awake, we can hear that. When we're sound asleep, we think God is listening to us, and all we're doing is entertaining ourselves. And we run into wall after wall after wall after wall, because all the mind does is manufacture misery. Any, I tell newcomers, anything, and I mean anything, that your mind tells you is wrong. If we're really in a place of being teachable and we say we're humble and we're on this path, then we're usually going to someone who's sober 40 years saying, what do you think of this? I get an idea, maybe I should start this new job. I'm thinking about dating this person. What do you think of this? That's one of the first signs of God operating in someone's life. We become teachable. When someone's not teachable, they're God, not God. I wind up outside the uh, Port Authority in midtown Manhattan, and I've shared the story from a million of these podiums. Till this day, I don't know how I got there, what happened to me afterwards. But I do remember this one moment, because God interrupted my life. Shut everything down. And our book talks about the flimsy reed, which proves to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And God shut my life down and gave me this moment of clarity because God will get us, God will, will strike us sober even though we're blind drunk. We could be on the run of all runs and we hit that place where God gets in the middle of that and we, we're struck sober. And in that moment it's not always pleasant. It doesn't feel good when we take stock of our life and as I did and went, oh my God. And what I thought of in this moment, on the 9th Avenue side of Port Authority, Midtown Manhattan, was my dad and my mom who passed in my family. And I took stock of me. I could not deny what I was looking at. Me, who hadn't bathed or ate I don't know how long. I was living in the streets and homeless, and Mr. Boston Blackberry Brandy owned me. I had six treatment centers behind me. What do I do? I tried AA. They told me, don't drink, go to meetings. If I had the power to not drink, well, i have to come here for it. It doesn't work. Nothing works. I had shrinks work with me. I had priests throw holy water on me. My dad showed into my room one time with like a 55 gallon drum of holy water. Look, I seen out of the exorcist. (laughs) Just threw it all on me. Something would work. And there I was. And what I did in this moment of clarity was curse God. Because you did this to me. You're not loving, you're ruthless. And I'm in your crosshairs, and whatever I did to you, you're angry with me, and God got every four-letter word I can think of, and I went about my business. I'm so grateful that God doesn't keep a scorecard, that God's not a human power, because if God was a human power, he would have said, hey, you've spoke harshly to me too many times, you've burned every bridge I put in front of you, I'm done. But God will, well, doesn't need a decorative palace to show up. God will go to the most sordid spot and get one of his children when the intent is pure. Are you done? Yes, let's go. And I had to linger and God had to push me a little bit further to the edge. until so June 23rd, 1988 showed up and the gift of desperation came in the form of, if you're out there, please take me from this. I don't want to die. It was the first time in my life that I didn't want to die, and perhaps as honest as I will ever be until God calls me home. There were no reservations or a lurking notion. There wasn't getting sober for her. There wasn't getting sober for money. There wasn't getting sober for a job. I don't want to die. And I wasn't thinking of Alcoholics Anonymous or treatment or anything. I don't want to die. Please take me from this. And what do I get? As if someone whispered in this ear, enough, I have other work for you to do. And I couldn't understand what that meant except one thing, I'm hearing voices, I'm completely out of my mind. (laughs) Here's what I'm happy to share with you. I was out of my mind. I hope to always be completely out of my mind. I pray you completely lose your mind and never, never returns because it's in the mind that the problems exist. I hear folks saying all the time, I'm having a tough day, I'm up in my head, I'm up in my head, I'm up in my head. That means you're in your mind, get out of your mind, you're doing great. It's in the mind where we experience resistance, it's in the spirit where I experience liberation. And God separated me from that for a moment, and when that happens, when we're in that place where we finally break... And it doesn't feel good. The dialogue, there's a different dialogue going on within us. We're not listening to a thinking mind. We're not listening to the alcoholic mind. We're listening to a different voice, a different rhythm. It's the God piece. It's been all wiped clean now. And God will speak to us and we'll, we'll get it in different ways. Different people will show up. But the dialogue changes in that moment of desperation when the intent is proven. We say, I'm done. Something changes. We make a phone call. We get to an AA meeting. Something happens that is indeed miraculous. It is a God journey. Because based on my own thinking, I go back to drinking again. And on June 23rd, 1988, God gave me the intuitive thought to go get help. And interrupted my death. And I start uh, 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 searching for my dad. The only guy on the entire planet who's going to come get me in this condition would be my dad, who I hadn't seen for a while. Hadn't seen my whole family. I was walking around with construction boots with big holes in them and soil clothes and about 40, 50 pounds on the weight. And I looked the part of a Bowery bum, dying of alcoholism. If I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as they walked into AA. I remember going to a pay phone a call and collect. I get a crying jag, hang up the phone. Go to another phone, crying again, hang up the phone. And I got this thought what if I do get him and he comes get me because he's going to come get me how do I explain my condition to him do I break his heart completely God gave me a mustard seed of compassion and a mustard seed of willingness to move a mountain it's called recovery my dad was uh, in uh, South Jersey in Atlantic City that weekend with his wife and uh, they were there to gamble see a show have some dinner and and while he was there, he got this intuitive thought. We just talked about this over Thanksgiving. He had this intuitive thought, what he referred to as a feeling in his gut. That I was in trouble. And he, and he remembered him telling me to start my first day of birth. my son's in trouble. And he dropped off his wife and headed downtown to what he called the horror spots. And he would go look for me. And on June 23rd, 1988, while I'm trying to call him, kept hanging up the phone. God connects the dots and God works through people. It isn't only people in the It's just people. The guardian angel show up in a policeman, a mom, a dad, a parent, a spouse, whoever it might be. For me it was my dad. And he found me. And God brought the two of us together. And when he drove up in his car, he got out of the car. But unlike the time I stole from him many times when he would scream my name, he just called my name and walked across the street. And I told him, Dad, I'm okay. And as he got closer, I collapsed and I fell into his arms. And I remember him holding me up and what he kept saying. And my dad's not a religious man. He's not a spiritual kind of guy. But when God shows up, God shows up. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It's ood-altering. And on June 23, 1988, when I collapsed in my dad's arms, my dad, I remember very clearly, my dad's holding me. In the most sordid moment in both of our lives, my dad held me up and stood proud, head up and shoulders squared. And what he kept repeating like a mantra was this, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son to this. He kept saying it over and over and over again. I know now who was, what was going on. We know what was going on. He couldn't see it, but something indeed miraculous was happening. Our big book talks about how our roots grasp new soil. It, be, it happens that way because the soil has gotten poisoned, the plant has gotten sick, and we need to be uprooted in place somewhere else. That day doesn't feel good, but thank the good Lord, it happens. And it happened for us on June 23rd, 19th. It was the beginning of a healing for the entire family. It seemed awful when that happened. Bill says how dark it is before the dawn, huh? And I was placed in my last treatment center, number seven. And after 10 days of being in this place, after all of this, the insidious insanity of the first drink was galloping back St. Peter, one more double. Now let's have one more double, and I can go to group and talk about my enablers, my triggers, my issues, and all this other stuff. Just get a double in you and settle down the nerves. And they sent me out to Minnesota, to, and I, I, they would take me to outside meetings, a meeting called the Three Legacies meeting. <laughs> And people will get to the podium dressed like I am tonight, not like they're going to commit a felony after the meeting's over. <laughs> <laughs> and no one was texting during an AA meeting. I'll go in the soapbox again, and i give you a pass because you knew, but there was a young lady speaking Friday night, and I counted 15 people texting during her talk. Shame on you. Shame on your sponsor. Thank you. (laughs) I lived out in Minnesota for about 10 months, and I was brought home uh, to Brooklyn on an invitation. And uh, I went back to work, and um, uh, my family started to get reassembled. I got a sponsor and began going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And little by slowly, things started to happen. I was no longer attached to this mind. I was no longer counting days but something was happening in me that was indescribably wonderful and I had the same way I was driven to go pick up a drink. I was moved to go bring back to my family and take this glorious message home and My sponsor started me right away on the on prayer meditation, and I found a great power in the connectedness in the power in the practice of meditation. Where I give attention to this power, and it quiets the mind and awakens the spirit and get my soul food every day. And we were out working with drunks and going to meetings, all things we had to do, and uh, trust started to come back, and dignity started to come back, and integrity became a regular occurrence. And I stand here before you tonight with dignity and integrity and having a life of rigorous honesty, which is a far cry from what showed up in June of 1988. But you, this fellowship, abandoned an open moon, put me back together again. Through the power of God, who knows when my heart is breaking and knows when I'm joyful and knows about my, my, my curiosity about certain things and the riddles in my life, like all of us, through the power of meditation, God answered those and healed me further. There were things that I was always worried about with mom and just riddles in life, like how did this happen and why and where did she go? Saying she went to heaven was no longer working. I'm an adult now. That stuff doesn't work for me. I need something tangible. And I found that God is incredibly tangible. Oh, he may or she may or it may be in the heavens, whatever you believe. But it's incredibly t- uh, tangible. When our book says the great reality is deep down within, when we wake up, we get to see the spirit in you is God, the spirit in you is God, the spirit in you is God. And we are connected. We are no longer separate. And God becomes very tangible. When we go to our sacred meetings and we see a young lady with one day, and she'll get her year coin and start sponsoring people, we see God alive. We see God in the eyes. We hear God in the words. We can hear God. We can feel God in the sacred rooms of AA. God's not vague and out there. It's very much alive in the sacred rooms of AA. And I got to experience that. And in meditation, God said, when the ground is fertile, here." And one of the greatest gifts I've gotten because of AA, because of the 12th and because of a loving God, is not only sobriety, but through meditation was this. I stand here tonight knowing that I am known by my Creator. I stand before you free tonight of alcoholism, free tonight of alcoholism, the stuff that goes underground and here to serve as I am on any day. God keeps me above ground and breathing. man. that's my life. And that's all I got. Peace.